Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to COVID-19 Day 547 Press Update. David, did you want to intro or should I go ahead? All right, I'll go ahead and um, share about the vaccines. Um, once again, we have 78.3% of New Mexicans 18 and over and 61.5% of uh, New Mexicans 12 to 17 years old have received at least one dose. So that is super exciting. We're doing about one percentage point every week uh, on improving, and that's just way better than we thought we ever would do. So congratulations to all New Mexicans. Um, we have 68.4% of New Mexicans 18 and over fully vaccinated and 48.9 12 to 17 year olds who are fully vaccinated. Um, if you look at the uh, slide here on the side, um, just want to congratulate all of New Mexico, our DOH team, all our providers and pharmacies throughout the state and everyone who's gotten vaccinated to keep the state safe. If you can see here, um, wanna congratulate the Southeast, you're increasingly improving your vaccine rate. So that's really exciting. And um, as my colleague, uh, Dr. Ross will be sharing later on, that's really helping our state have fewer cases than other states and is also protecting our children who aren't vaccinated yet. Um, we'll also be having a dashboard. We're working on a dashboard that will start updating to reflect the additional third doses that um, people who are immune compromised are, are going to get. So, so good job, everybody. Uh, next slide. We also want to thank all our mobile teams, both our New Mexico National Guard and FEMA teams. They have been going all throughout the states and have given over 27,000 doses in places of high social vulnerability, in um, places with racial and ethnic equity to really inequities where we're actually improving vaccine equity. So uh, we wanna let everyone know that if you're a community organization, a church, if you're in a difficult to reach location, if you wanna have a mobile team, you can still visit vaccinenewmexico.org to request a COVID-19 vaccine team for your event. So we're really excited about that. That's one of our ways we're getting to reach everyone in New Mexico. Uh, next slide. This is another um, exciting update is that thank you to everybody who participated in August. We had a 58% increase in vaccine administration. That's over 50,000 extra doses this last month. So for those of you who got vaccinated this past month, um, the $100 vaccine incentive deadline to sign up is this Friday. So if you got a first or second dose of Pfizer or Moderna or your one shot of J&J &J during the month of August, um, you can get your $100 incentive still if you haven't signed up. Um, the $100 incentive, if um, you, you can get it by email, by text, or physical mail. And if you get it by email or text, you can only spend it online. And if you get it on physical person, you can spend it anywhere, um, online or offline or in physical person. Uh, you have to register by 5 p.m. on September 10th, and you just go to the vaccinenewmexico.org incentive registration site. So sign up if you haven't yet, and you'll get your $100. Next slide. Um, so we want to like go over booster doses again. I know we talked about it last week, but once again, booster doses, the purpose of them is really to boost the waning immunity you get um, over time from the vaccine. 
and uh, who qualifies? No one yet qualifies. And uh, and the other question is, when can I get the booster? And we're still waiting for final data and recommendations from the FDA and uh, CDC later this month. And for those of you who listen to NPR from um, from um, Dr. Fauci, also said, yeah, like um, we're waiting for FDA approval. We're gonna be able to do boosters soon, but like I said, we're waiting on all the data. Next slide. So I guess the big question that people have is like when we will be getting these doses and um, we aren't actually ready to start the start the fire the starting gun yet because we don't actually know where the starting line is yet. It could be anywhere between six to 10 months is what the CDC says. So we're just waiting on that. Um, when you look at this line, though, here's the line of uh, when we started getting doses in December. You can see that it steadily goes up and then slowly goes down. So just imagine six to 10 months from now, we'll be following that same curve, depending on if it's six months or eight months or 10 months. Um, so and then remember back then when we did long term care facilities and healthcare workers first, um, then people with comorbidities and teachers, essential care workers. So basically just remember that little curve and that's pretty much what's gonna happen when we go forward. It's just roughly that's what it looks like. Um, but just so you know, you know, at the DOH we're planning, we're getting ready, um, our hospital systems, thanks to all of the hospital systems out there that said that they would be ready to give their doses um, to their workers, that's gonna be a huge help. And we've already been talking to our aging and long-term services department. They're working with our pharmacies and other providers and delivery systems. But basically, we're going to need all hands on deck. So we really want to encourage all providers who are ready to give doses again to sign up to do so. Uh, next slide. We're actually like really fortunate that it's convenient that flu is coming at the same flu vaccine is coming at the same time as COVID because you can actually get the two, the flu and the COVID at the same time. Um, you can also actually give it in the same arm at the same time, not in the same place, but in different places on your arm. Um, also, just a reminder to all the parents out there who are getting their kids vaccines as well, just a reminder that you can get the COVID vaccine together with the childhood vaccines. And really, it's really not that uncommon to get multiple vaccines together. Next slide. And then once again, a call or a plea to all providers out there um, and also to people to get their provide, to reach out to their providers for your next COVID-19 vaccine dose. Uh, we're trying to move away from these mass vaccination sites to really just make vaccines like a regular part of flu and any other booster shots that you're gonna get that you can get in your provider offices. Um, ask your provider if they currently give COVID vaccines, and if not, when they'll be making booster doses available. Um, we're also working with um, our medical teams and pharmacy providers to be ready when we are starting to get boosters again. And uh, if you are a provider and you're like, yes, I want to give vaccines to my patients, uh, sign up at TakeCareNewMexico.org. We have teams who are ready to support you and help you get signed up to to do the vaccine. And uh, we're just really grateful for everybody and all their efforts to, uh, to keep on giving the vaccine and keeping our community safe. Thank you. 
And now I'm gonna turn it over to my awesome colleague, Dr. Christine Ross. Thank you, Laura. So um, good afternoon, everybody. It's my pleasure to uh, join you uh, again this week um, for this uh, COVID-19 update. I have a few slides to share with you on our um, COVID data. So the first one I think everybody's familiar with, this is our uh, statewide epidemic curve. And of course, everybody's well aware that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to impact the state of New Mexico and the United States uh, in general. Uh, so this is showing uh, the number of new cases and we plot it over time. And what we're looking at is over to the far right, which is the most current dates. And though, although we, we certainly don't want to celebrate too early, I do want to say that we're happy to see that, that there is a deceleration of growth in new cases. Um, and what you can see is the semblance of a possible plateau there in this, in this small mountain on the far right of the slide. Um, again, it's, it's my job to, to worry, uh, so I certainly don't want to celebrate too early, but I am happy to, to see this uh, semblance of a plateau. So I do want to say thank you to all New Mexicans who are following uh, COVID safe practices and other preventive measures to, to help us flatten this curve. Um, of course, with the, the Labor Day uh, holiday, uh, we could see an impact in our case counts over the next week or so. So we're gonna continue to watch this uh, very, very closely, um, but are very hopeful uh, that this plateau will then turn into a decreasing trend of uh, new cases. Okay, let's move to the next slide. And so this is a slide from our, our partnership with um, some modelers at Presbyterian. So they use our epi surveillance data to calculate what we call the R effective or what's known as the effective reproduction number or the average number of secondary infections that result from one infected person. So what we're calling this on the slide is the spread rate. And what, what you're seeing here on the slide is they have calculated the R effective has trended down to one. And that also is something that we really like to see. And we want to see this number um, continue to drop underneath one. So basically when this R effective is greater than one, COVID-19, um, we expect that it will spread exponentially. And if the number is less than one, we expect that uh, cases, uh, that the spread will be slower and cases will decline. So again, this is a move in the right direction. We're hoping to see this drop below one. And again, I think uh, the box is indicating that we, we got the word out about the highly infectious nature of the Delta variant and its predominance in New Mexico and the need to really uh, to, to follow preventive measures. We reinstituted re a public health order asking everyone to mask indoors. All of these things together appear to have made a, a positive impact. Okay, let's go ahead to the next slide. 
And so this one you're also familiar with, this is data from our vaccine report, where we take the surveillance data looking at uh, cases and also surveillance data looking at hospitalizations. And then we take vital records information um, looking at deaths and we match that data with our vaccine registry data. So this slide is showing the proportion of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths by vaccine status. Or in other words, is this individual uh, vaccinated, fully vaccinated, or not? So the yellow part of the bar represents unvaccinated individuals. And you can see that this segment of the bar under for cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are predominantly among um, this, this category of individuals or unvaccinated individuals. And so again, this, this data is, is just a constant reminder about the protection that the COVID-19 vaccines afford us against this, this virus. So let's go ahead and move to uh, next slide. And this is, this is also data from that same report. And what's different here is it's showing a trend over time. And the green line is representing um, unvaccinated individuals, the yellow uh, representing vaccinated individuals. We're gonna ignore the red dotted line for now. Um, but again, the take home message is that the, the, the driving force in the surge of cases that we're seeing in New Mexico is among, unfortunately, is among uh, unvaccinated uh, individuals. Let's go ahead and move to the next slide. So we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, demographics, um, particularly age. So, so what are we seeing here in New Mexico with regards to a breakdown in age? So this is a this is a slide from the demographic epidemiology report looking at um, daily case rates over time. Um, we wanted to include some of this data because we have been receiving a lot of questions about what's happening among uh, children. And what I, what I first wanna uh, show with this slide is uh, the, the big blue arrow there, um, I'm trying to indicate where the Delta variant uh, became the predominant variant that we were sequencing in uh, New Mexico. And then you see the surge in cases after that. Um, and this is among all the different age groups which are broken down on the right-hand side. So just as a reminder, we do genomic surveillance by conducting what we call whole, whole genome sequencing. And this is of specimens that we receive at the state public health lab. And we also partner with several labs, including uh, folks at UNM and LANL, several other labs, including uh, CDC, uh, to, to um, uh, conduct this, this surveillance for variants of concern. And what we see here is this clear pattern of when uh, the Delta variant was the predominant variant. We unfortunately had this real surge um, in cases amongst all different age groups. What I want to zone in on, though, just want to point out here is the yellow line, which is school-age children, age 
5 to 17, and you can see that that line is quite high. Uh, so case rates are quite high among that age group. 0 to 4 is the black line, uh, which we've also seen a, a uh, significant increase in the case rate, uh, though it is lower than those uh, among the 5 to 17-year-old age band. And then you can move to the next slide, I believe. Okay, and this again, zoning in on some of our pediatric data, we're looking at uh, the number of uh, pediatric cases. We just wanted to point out that overall, of all the cases that we've reported to date, uh, that pediatric age range has accounted for about 15, almost 16% of the cases. Though currently, um, the number of pediatric cases is taking up a larger proportion of what we're reporting out. And in fact, over the last seven days, this is 24%. Uh, and I believe the week before it might've been closer to 25% of, of our total case count. The graph on the top are um, uh, individuals uh, zero to four, I believe. Sorry, I think the age is obscured, but that's zero to four-year-olds. And then the graph on the bottom is five to 17-year-olds, um, both, again, experiencing a, a real uh, acceleration in the case rates, uh, though it's, it's, it's uh, more dramatic in, that, in the lower graph there amongst five to 17-year-olds. And let me show you this last slide where we zone in on this a little bit more. And again, um, uh, what I want to point out is the 5 to 17-year-olds are that yellow um, a line. And I think what's interesting here, we want to show you that the case rates in the winter surge, which is the big mountain in the middle of the slide, case rates were very similar among five to 17 year olds, and then also 65 and over. So very similar case rates. And then you can see that case rates declined um, nicely over time. And we had uh, quite a, a uh, we could call a lull uh, for a period of time and then hit our, our lowest numbers um, in, uh, I'd say, end of June, um, uh, beginning of July. And then they really took off um, with this uh, surge, which is being fueled by uh, Delta. But what's really interesting is you see this divergence of these lines where the pediatric age group five to 17 in the yellow continues up very high and is nearly the same as the 18 to 34 year olds now, but the 65 and over have, um, although they increased, you can see it's not nearly as high as this, this uh, school age group. And we think, you know, obviously there's a lot of differences between those groups, but one thing uh, that really sticks out is vaccination coverage. And we know the 65 and overs have a very high vaccine uptake or vaccine coverage in this age group. And certainly we do not see uh, even half that rate in this younger age group, given that you're not eligible for vaccination right now until the age of 12. So this is some of the reason why we are anxious, anxiously awaiting approval, uh, FDA approval for these younger age groups so we can help uh, temper uh, the number of infections that we're seeing uh, um, right now. So let me move to the next slide. I believe this may be all of the slides and I'll turn it over to Secretary Scrace. Um, thanks so much, Christine and Laura as well, Christina. 
you get my unofficial award for the coolest slide of the week with that last slide. I think it really demonstrates the progress we've made in the state with respect to vaccination and how that's protected us. And there's more news on that that I'll go over today in my slides. So I'm going to talk about hospitalizations and deaths and testing and sort of batting cleanup here for this press conference presentation. Let's move on to the next slide, Brianna. And, and uh, this is our self-scoring for hospitals. You can still, you can still see that we're barely in the crisis standards of care um, range now. We have not had to deny anyone medical treatment. Uh, we have uh, had, a, a, as you'll see in a minute, very full ICU beds, but we are still managing to move people around the state, move ventilators around the state, move high flow oxygen tubing around the state and move uh, treatments around the state in order to make sure that everyone is still getting cared for. So we have not issued any kind of official crisis standards of care declaration. And while it's really good news that we're seeing a plateauing in the case curves that uh, Christine, Dr. Ross just showed you, we still anticipate another two weeks of hospitalization surge as we've seen in previous waves of the pandemic. So uh, I'll still be sitting on the edge of my seat uh, through uh, close to the end of September now till I think our hospital partners will and, and DOH facilities will feel like we're actually getting out of the woods. Next slide. Uh, these are maps of how many ICU beds were open uh, yesterday morning around the state on the left and regular general medical beds on the right, we've been putting a lot of our attention to the southeast part of the state where you can see yesterday there were only two ICU beds left in the whole southeastern part of the state. And on the right-hand side, you can see uh, slightly more uh, general medical beds. Generally, those fill up by noon every day. And so we're, uh, those, those twos and ones go down to zeros. But then, of course, people are discharged. Uh, um, in the mornings, uh, like this morning, and so we have more open beds, but we're basically putting as many people into beds as we have open beds at the present time and expect that to continue again, as I mentioned, for another couple of weeks at least. Next slide. Uh, you know, modeling, we're seeing something really, really interesting. And what we're seeing is actually the modeling that we've been doing is no longer predictive of hospitalizations. And so I'll show you two of the models we use. I don't want to go into too much depth here, but on the left, we have the Lionel uh, Los Alamos National Lab hospital projection model with the blue line, what they were projecting, and the circles being what we're experiencing. And you can see the trend of those circles is going now in a different direction than the original modeling. On the Presbyterian slide, it's a little more complicated to read. The blue lines refer to all hospitalizations, the red lines, just ICU beds. Let's just look at all hospitalizations. You can see the solid blue line going up to about two weeks ago. Then that dotted line, which is our previous projection, but then the actual hospitalizations uh, were lower than we were expecting that gap. Maybe Brianna, you can show it between the top dotted line in blue and the blue curve. Uh, the case is actually uh, now the solid blue line the cases actually were lower than that and now are projected to trail off. So there's something about our response this time 
or the Delta variant that we don't fully understand that has created this change in the shape of the curve. Some of us believe that uh, New Mexicans uh, responded more quickly and, and more of us responded to getting treatment for a positive COVID test with symptoms and a risk factor. And I'll show you those, those curves in a second. Uh, that reduces hospitalizations by 20, by, sorry, by 75% in high-risk individuals. And that would certainly be enough to explain the difference between either of these two sets of curves you see on this slide. Uh, but just to reassure you, we continue to model. And now, we'll, as you see Presbyterian has done on the right and Lana will do, we'll adjust our modeling algorithm to adjust for these changes we're seeing in real life. Um, and again, um, given the choice of having the little circles, the actual cases be below what we projected or above, we're, we're happy to take having the cases be lower than we expected. And we still are up against it in terms of our resources in hospitals. On the next slide, uh, we're gonna look at uh, cases, uh, pediatric cases. This is just to follow up on Christine's slides, but also questions from reporters last week about what are we seeing in pediatric cases. The PEDS groups are the black and orange lines in Halloween colors at the very, very bottom of the graph. You can see they're barely, uh, the percent of cases in kids uh, that are admitted is extremely low. Now the percent of cases in kids you saw is much higher, but it's much more unusual for children to be admitted. If you squint and stare really closely at the last part of that orange curve, you'll see a slight uptick there. So that we have seen a slight increase, but over the in course of the entire pandemic, we've only had 281 kids hospitalized, uh, only two in the past week and uh, only four deaths. Of course, one death is way too many. And we all feel that even more deeply when it's a child, but only four deaths in the entire course of the pandemic. And we're gonna talk about why that might be, uh, mainly because you all asked us and we didn't know the answer. You've been asking us, how come we're not seeing the same kind of increase in pediatric hospitalizations that other states are seeing? And we do have an answer for you today on behalf, uh, uh, courtesy of the Center for Disease Control that I'll go over in a couple of slides here. Next slide, please. Uh, so we are seeing a 10 times increase in hospitalizations nationwide uh, in the age zero to four group. We've all been reading about this in the news. We also know that unvaccinated adolescents, 12 to 17, are being hospitalized 10 times more frequently than their fully vaccinated counterparts in the 12 to 17-year-old age group. And so just again, a reminder to wear a mask uh, in public indoor spaces, all schools. This is for everyone ages two and up. Um, it also extends to child care centers, of course, as well. And gotten a lot of emails from people describing the difficulty of <clears throat> keeping a mask on a two-year-old. I've spent some time with my two-year-old uh, grandson recently trying to keep a mask on him. I do feel your pain. And remember a little bit of masking is better than no masking at all. We all know that it's hard to keep uh, two-year-olds uh, occupied doing anything you want them to do, but the extent to which we can keep, keep kids masked in schools and child care, care centers, the better. And of course, everybody who's eligible for a vaccine should be vaccinated. Now the next slide uh, uh, shows this national trend of increased hospitalizations and 
and you can see that the top group is that zero to four with a tenfold increase in hospitalizations uh, from, you know, like basically, I think, two hundredths of one uh, percent, perhaps, or even less than that to 10 times higher, still a low rate. And then you can see the numbers for 18 plus year olds, adults and five to 17. So kids being young kids, zero to four being hospitalized at a higher rate than even adults. And so again, a reminder to keep those masks on when around others. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so here's the answer to multiple, multiple reporter questions about how come we're seeing hospitalizations increase so much in children and adolescents in the rest of the country and New Mexico is not. Is there something wrong with our data here in New Mexico? We, we did not believe there was. But what the CDC has found now is there's a very strong correlation between low vaccination levels of people 12 and older in a state and pediatric hospitalizations. And the ratio is approximately four to one. They've got these little hospital icons. Uh, Brianna, on the next slide, if you can go to that, we can show you the actual data that came from the CDC article. I know it looks a little complicated, but basically they divided all the states in America up into four quartiles from the highest vaccination rate states to the lowest. You can see New Mexico, we're privileged to be in one of the highest vaccination rate states for 12 and older, uh, still in the top 10. And then you can see in the lower quartiles, if you just um, scan that, all of those southeastern states that we've seen with such high rates are there. Now in the table above, I wanna focus on the right-hand column, the hospital admissions. The, the hospital admissions for the highest quartile that New Mexico is in, we're the reference point. And you can see second highest quartile, 40% more hospitalizations. But then you go to the, the second lowest and lowest quartiles, it's three and a half to seven and a half times more hospitalizations per 100,000 kids age zero to 17. And so we think this is the answer to the question we postulated this last week that maybe our high vaccination rate is helping. And just to remind you, and uh, we all need things that we can feel good about in this pandemic, but every single person listening today who's gotten a vaccination, you've protected yourself, your family, but you've also protected children in New Mexico and the immunity of adults uh, is now being shown to protect immunity levels in kids. So we're proud of this. Uh, we're happy to see these results. We're sorry that it's uh, so bad elsewhere. I don't have time today, but in the uh, left-hand data column there, you can also see that your chances of being a child going to a, an ER in a lower lowest vaccination rate state or two and a half to Three, uh, 3.3, 3.4 times higher than it would be in a high vaccination rate state like New Mexico. Okay, so that's an update on kids and hospitals and an explanation that I think is pretty good about why we're doing well. Uh, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately, we are continuing as predicted last week. I told you we'd see an uptick in deaths, not just for the prior week, but for multiple prior weeks. And you can see that uh, those last two weeks in August, or I think we're in the teens and 20s, and now they're in the 30s. And we will continue to see that upward trend in deaths for another four weeks. 
after that hospital trend. So uh, that's sad. Our hearts go out to all the families. You know, I was touched by one of my co-workers in uh, state government who died of COVID over the weekend, somebody I knew very well who had been to my house house to help me uh, get my new laptop up and running. And so, uh, you know, these deaths really, really make an impression when, you know, you can look at 4,000 deaths or more and it can be very abstract, but when someone you know or you know well passes from COVID, it really has helped me to see even more clearly uh, the real impact that it's had on individuals and their families. Next slide, please. I wanna talk about one slide here about treatments and then two slides later about non-treatments. And so we're doing well with treatments. On the left, this is the antiviral agent remdesivir, the number of doses given in hospitals. Our hospitals are very savvy in the treatment of these moderately ill people that end up in the hospital. And almost everyone now is getting some form of antiviral treatment. Almost all of those are remdesivir. And you can see that uh, our hospital partners have really uh, kicked up the administration of that as they see new cases. Uh, each course of remdesivir is like six to 11 doses. So the number of people treated is, uh, we'd have to divide to get the people treated. And then on, the, on the, another very positive figure is a very significant uptick uh, thanks in large part to our media partners who have been getting the word out uh, really well about monoclonal antibody treatment. If you have a COVID, uh, if you have a COVID-19 test that's positive and you have symptoms and you're either greater than 64 years old or you're obese or you have any risk factor for serious COVID and that's heart disease, lung disease, high blood pressure, uh, immune uh, disorders. Uh, you should really seek out treatment. It lowers the hospitalization rate by 75%. And we believe that some of the decrease in hospitalizations that we're seeing, not all of it, but some of it is due to people seeking out treatment and avoiding hospitalization and, in fact, avoiding death as well. Next slide, please. Uh, I want to go back over testing. It's a big issue. Our reporters had lots of questions and challenges last week, so I want to make sure we give you the latest data. Next slide, uh, Brianna. Uh, our test positivity rate finally back down below our seven-day rolling average target of 7.5% and staying there. I would, I want to see that curve go back downward. I don't like the idea that it's parallel to the target line. It's very, very close, uh, you know, a couple dozen tests away from popping back up again. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, and there might be some of those folks, when that blue line is above the green line, that means we're not fully keeping track of all the cases in New Mexico and able to track everyone with COVID. And so we're happy to see that getting back under control. Next slide, please. Uh, a number of tests done per week. We've had certainly some record days, as you can see there, but a very, very nice trend upward from 4,000 to 5,000 tests, 3,500 to 5,000 tests in uh, almost the entire month of July to over 10,000 tests almost the entire month of August and on average over uh, 10,000 tests a day. So that's doing very well. Uh, again, I, I think on the next slide, I'll just remind everybody when you should get tested. 
Uh, for COVID, no, it's going to be the, the slide after that. So on this slide, just we do monitor turnaround times. Uh, we expect our in-state labs, which are uh, pathology consultants, SLD, Southwest Labs, Tricor, to be as low as they possibly can. When folks go out of state, then there are, uh, you know, there are necessary delays with transportation. Uh, but in general, uh, we're doing reasonably well in terms of test turnaround time. Other because uh, this question is frequently asked, is just a conglomeration of a couple hundred other doctors' offices, hospital facilities that do their own testing, and we aggregate those all into one group that has been growing. Uh, next slide, please. So yeah, here's the reminder. Uh, COVID testing remains available at no cost. You should not be being billed by your insurer for the testing. Get tested if you have symptoms. Uh, or you've been in close contact to a positive case, if you live or work in a high-risk congregate setting, and of course, if you're scheduled for a hospital procedure, you will hear from the hospital. Not many elective procedures being done these days, but this no longer depends on vaccination status. So uh, close contacts, vaccinated or not, please get tested. Please seek out testing. There's a, a go, If you go to findatestnm.org, it will walk you through the steps. Also gives you a link to Vault if you just want to collect this specimen in your own home. In addition, there are new opportunities for testing springing up. Uh, on our next slide, you can see the uh, 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 the fact that the CDC issued a warning. I think like ten minutes after our press conference last week, saying that uh, you know there is now a supply shortage for rapid COVID tests. A lot more people are requesting the rapid test. They're saying, please get a PCR test. In the meantime, uh, this is just from a laboratory uh, website, but uh, you know, plan ahead. If you're one of those people getting surveillance testing weekly, you can schedule that weekly through Vault. You could go to a curative site um, and uh, numerous people that I already listed in the other category. And every day we are seek out and try to add more and more of these testing sites to our website. But many days now, uh, we've had over 100 different places open and offering testing. Uh, may not be at the exact hour or time that you want, but we still feel like we're doing a reasonably good job uh, keep, keeping up with people's testing needs. Next slide. And in addition, the market is expanding. Abbott, uh, they're by next now. Card. There's new data that suggests if you're getting weekly testing, you may want to uh, uh, just buy a kit of these. Uh, right now, they're available online for $150, uh, and then they run the uh, you run the test on yourself at home. Uh, it could be done on anybody for or over. We're not really advertising for them, but just illustrating this. And we are actually working to develop a partnership with EMed where we the state could provide uh, some of these uh, tests for individuals as well uh, without the same charge. And so we're working on that now, but I think over the next couple of weeks, uh, we will see uh, CDC reports are closely monitoring the supply chain for these more rapid test options. And I think we'll see a, a reopening and uh, more, many more of these tests available on the market. So just another option for those who require testing. Next slide, please. Uh, also, 
uh, came up uh, the past couple of weeks. We are launching a new program for testing in the schools. We have a new partnership with the Premier Medical Group, uh, and they uh, we've got a $63 million grant from the federal government to fund this testing to help keep our schools safe. So all the testing and resulting will be provided through the schools, the regular testing for teachers and staff, but this will also be available for students, parents who want their students tested, uh, parents who want their children tested in school uh, will have some access for this as well. And the schools have to apply to participate. And we are, we've already, of course, told our public education department about this and have been working with them on this. But if there are schools watching this that are not signed up for the program, we'd encourage you to do this. It's free. It's provided through the state. Another option for increasing the amount of testing we're doing without burdening existing testing resources that are close to full right now. Okay, uh, we're on the home stretch, I promise. Next slide, please. Uh, I want to talk about uh, misinformation. You know, every week I talk about um, some tragic episode. Uh, to my knowledge, and this is unofficial, but I've heard about anyway, the first death in New Mexico from someone who took uh, Invermectin, thinking it was a, a reliable treatment for COVID. You can see the things here that it's used for. It's only taken internal to the body uh, for people with river blindness, intestinal strongyloidiasis, which is a, a worm that inhabits the GI tract. Believe it or not, I've treated people for this in my career. You can put it on your skin for lice and rosacea, but uh, it's mainly a veterinary medicine for parasite infections in animals. It is not authorized or approved by the FDA. There's a cult following for this drug that Matt has looked at it. Medical advisory team has looked at it three times. We don't think there's evidence for it to be uh, effective in treating COVID by any stretch of the imagination. And now we have uh, one person who we believe uh, may have expired from an overdose of the drug and another in the intensive care unit in our state. Next slide. Uh, you know, uh, just again, reminder, we're giving you the poison control number. If you know someone who's taken ivermectin, I, I might have mispronounced it earlier, ivermectin, uh, encourage them to call poison control. The animal products are very, very concentrated. It, I, you don't have to be a veterinarian or a physician to know that the dose you might give a horse for a parasite infection would be much larger than what you'd give a human being. Uh, these medicines, uh, ivermectin interacts with blood thinners, which can cause bleeding and a, a list of symptoms there that I won't read through. Uh, and, and overdoses can lead to seizure coma, that should say, or death. So please be uh, careful. Uh, please support us, uh, media partners, and uh, warning people of the dangers of, uh, of ivermectin and the fact that it's not a safe treatment and that we now are uh, seeing, uh, at least we are hearing about, and hopefully we'll have more documentation in the coming weeks when we get the death certificate about potential fatalities. All right, I think with that, uh, uh, the state fair, just a reminder, people need proof of a completed vaccination series or a valid exemption. 
I just reread the public health order and generally it consists of a doctor's note for uh, exemption related to medical or disability issues or a clergy person's note with respect to a religious exemption. And if you have that exemption, then you have to have a COVID test taken within 48 hours of your arrival uh, to the fairgrounds and that you have to have evidence that it's negative. If you're under 12, you do not uh, have to uh, comply with these requirements. And if you're not vaccinated, you don't have an exemption, then uh, admission is not open to you to the state fairgrounds. All right, let's close it out now with a reminder. Uh, please, uh, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. Continue to stay home and be very, very cautious around closed indoor spaces. Please wear masks. If you think you've been exposed, get tested. If you have a positive test and symptoms and risk factors that we've been through today, seek out the treatment. It will dramatically lower your risk of hospitalization. And then the usual washing our hands, keeping services clean, keeping those masks on, particularly indoors. And uh, don't forget preventive health care. And with that, Matt, I'm going to turn it back to you and we're open for questions. Great. Thanks so much to all three of our principals. And as usual, we'll take questions in the order uh, in which they appear. Uh, so please do raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. And uh, just a reminder of our new modified protocol for the press conferences. Um, we're, we're not going to limit things to one question per person. Uh, so we will cycle through multiple times as needed. Uh, and our request to you then would be uh, to not cluster multiple questions into one. Please just do ask one question at a time to allow our principals to focus and offer a clear answer. And we'll cycle back through as many times as we need to within a reasonable time frame. Uh, so with that, we'll begin with Jeffrey Plant, followed by Julia Goldberg, and then Stella Sun. Jeffrey, you are unmuted. Please ask. Uh, thank you very much, Matt. This is Jeffrey Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. A couple of weeks ago, I heard from our critical access hospital here in Silver City that the administration there uh, was eager to work with their employees who uh, were not yet vaccinated uh, to find or help them find and accommodate health or religious exemptions. Um, they managed to increase their vaccination rate by two percentage points from 85% to 87 uh, as of a couple of days ago. Uh, but if, if an employee declines to be vaccinated, uh, the administration indicated that they may well be put on PRN or on-call status. Have you heard of other New Mexico hospitals doing this? And uh, related to that, is, the, is this hospital worker vaccine mandate permanent or does it lapse with the health order? Or how does that, how does that work in the long term? Um well, thanks, Jeff. Good questions. Uh, I did circle back uh, on your question two or three weeks ago on the bad reporting and talk with the CEO there. So thanks for raising that. I want to congratulate. 87% is still a pretty good vaccination rate, not as good as the Department of Health. Just saying we're at uh, 88%, uh, probably up a little higher than that now. The public health orders, you know, can be renewed. So I think the intention is not to have this be a temporary requirement for hospital workers, but a permanent requirement. And it is the position of the state to leave the administration of uh, how this works with employees to local hospital leaders, in this case, or school leaders. So we're leaving it up to hospitals to make those decisions. 
Uh, we support them in those decisions. Hospitals can come up with their own rules for documenting exemptions, and uh, we leave that to them. And I think I just remind people that uh, uh, that you know, as frustrating as it can be uh, to to us to have folks who remain unvaccinated, uh, you know, this is America. It is a free choice. Uh, people are allowed to make those decisions. Uh, it's not up to me to pass judgment on their reasons for getting vaccinated or not. On the other hand, it is important for the state to weigh in in particularly high-risk situations like hospitals and congregate living situations like uh, nursing homes and assisted living facilities and uh, correctional facilities where uh, we have some of our most vulnerable people, actually most of our most vulnerable people in New Mexico. And so that is where uh, the state comes in in terms of a requirement for those populations, but we're leaving the administration up to individuals. And Christina, I, I saw you nodding your head. Do you want to say anything more about, about that? Oh, sorry. No, I'm just full in agreement with what you've said. I don't okay. think I have anything to add. Okay, thank you. All right. With that, we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, followed by Stella Sun, and then Dan McKay. Just a friendly request, uh, if you wouldn't mind calling out your, your media outlet when they're calling you, I'd appreciate it. Julia, you are unmuted. Thank you, and thanks for um, letting me ask the first of three questions. Um, I have been reading that there, nationally there's a bit of an increased demand for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO treatment. I wondered if UNM is still the only hospital with that resource and if it's being used. I know last year there was a man on it for over 90 days or, or something of that sort. Um, so I didn't know if it was in use and or um, if it was something that would be available to people in other states where there's a shortage or they don't actually have um, that treatment. Thanks. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to it. I thought Presbyterian was doing ECMO at least earlier on. I think uh, it's just a way of getting oxygen in people's blood that's different than putting a tube down their throat. The oxygen molecules are actually put into the bloodstream to provide needed oxygen to organs. Uh, we have not had a discussion about that in some time. So I will check back with our medical advisory team and uh, let you know what that status is. I do know, I do know that the university has ongoing cases and we'll check with Presbyterian and see if there's others. I don't know, uh, Laura, or do you have any idea about that at all? Okay. So sorry about that one, Julia. Should we, should we, Matt, should we have a rule that if we don't know the answer whatsoever to a question, we let the reporter ask a second one? Excellent. Best rule ever. Um, Dr. Patahan, I know you mentioned that the, you're going to update the vaccine database to include the booster shots, but I wondered if you had any raw numbers. When I asked in August, I was told there were about 30,000 people who'd marked immunocompromised on their vaccine registry profiles, and that jumped to about 57,000 if you added cancer registrants. I understand not all of them would be eligible, but I'm just wondering around how many people have received their third shot. About 10,000 people have received their third dose or additional shot um, okay. for, the, for the, yeah. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, with that, we'll turn to Stella Sun, followed by Dan McKay, followed by Cedar Atanasio. Stella, you are unmuted. 
Good afternoon. Thank you so much for holding this. Um, and thanks for sending the variant data earlier today. I was hoping you guys could address the mu variant. Um, Fauci says we don't really need to lose sleep over this variant, but um, we're seeing a lot of reports of it nationally. Um, I know it's kind of a mutation in the spike proteins, correct me if I'm wrong, and that it may make it resistant to antibodies produced by the vaccines. I'm hoping Dr. Ross, Grace, or Dr. Pettahone could please um, elaborate on this. Thank you. I'll just give a quick uh, introduction. And, um, you know, I think that every time a new variant comes out, there are four things we need to know. Uh, how infective is it compared to other variants, which we just went through in you know, big time with the Delta variant and much more infected. Two, um, does it cause more serious illness, hospitalization and death? And interesting, what we're seeing is it seems like it's causing more serious illness and hospitalization in unvaccinated populations than vaccinated in the Delta variant. So I'm sorry, I don't want to confuse this answer. So third, what about treatments? Does it do treatments work? And then lastly, what about vaccines? So you, you hit on you hit on the, the key question because obviously a variant that comes through that's completely resistant to all the existing vaccines would set us all up for a different kind of uh, coronavirus infection uh, going forward. I don't have any data in any of those four categories for you on the mu variant. And uh, I uh, we get our variant report tomorrow, Stella. So. Uh, at eight o'clock in the morning. So I can make sure that one of us, maybe Matt, you can take this assignment to get Stella any update about what we've seen. But I know in the last sampling last week, we had not seen any mu in the state, but Christine, do you have any more updated info on that? Yeah, well, I would just add that I think it's a, it's a little too early. I, I think I would agree with that quote from, from Dr. Fauci. I think we don't have enough information yet to classify this as a variant of concern. I, I, from my understanding is that it's, it's still a variant of interest, which means we're gonna keep an eye on it. Um, I think that in the United States, it's a very tiny um, proportion of, of, of the specimens that have been sequenced to date. So it has been identified in the United States. And yes, this is an update for you, uh, Secretary Scrace. We have sequenced this here in New Mexico as well. Um, and again, we're, this is why we're doing this type of surveillance to try to keep an eye of, on this evolution of the virus. How does it change? And then we keep an eye on what's happening globally uh, to, to understand um, the impact of these variants um, uh, in different locations in the globe. So I think currently it's too early to say, but I think it's a fantastic question. Um, and we're definitely going to be watching this very closely. Yeah, Stella, too, like if you're looking for something to keep you awake at night, you can do what I do and think about our hospital capacity in New Mexico over the next two weeks, because I think that that is uh, a subject worthy of uh, sleep loss, at least in the next two weeks. And we'll, as weeks go by, uh, we'll learn more and more about uh, Mu and Lambda and other variants that we're starting to see. Thank you.
Thanks, everybody. Next, we'll turn to Dan McKay, followed by Cedar Atanasio, followed by Chris McKee. Dan, you are unmuted. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, it's my understanding that uh, a top official at UNM Health Sciences has suggested people uh, resume masking outdoors. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from one or more of you whether you whether your thinking has evolved or changed on masking outdoors, <laughs> would you recommend that people start wearing masks uh, if they're outdoors exercising or if they're say going to the UNM football game or kind of a congregate setting. Um, uh, that's it. Thank you. Now I'll start on this and, and we'll see what my colleagues have to say. Uh, I think the answer is it depends. Uh, we're going with the CDC guidelines, as you know, in New Mexico now, there is no uh, uh, major formal recommendation except for unvaccinated people and more crowded settings. Uh, personally, I think with Delta, uh, there is increased infectiousness of that variant. Uh, so if I'm gonna be outdoors in a crowd myself, I'll wear a mask. I just will, because I just spend most of my life in contact with people 75 years and older in my practice. And I mean, that's not my whole life anymore. And we have relatives who are vulnerable. so. I'm mainly concerned about me not getting something that I then spread to others. So I think it, it depends. And, uh, you know, my wife and I still are doing our regular walking program in the dark in the morning, and we don't wear a, a mask for that anymore. But if I were going to go to a football game, I, you know, I, in a packed crowd, I'd probably wear a N95 and wrap around eye protection. I don't know, Christine and, and Laura, what would you do in, in a crowd outdoors? And it's okay to have different answers than me. Just <laughs> no, I, I think just in general, um, uh, I, I, I agree with the idea that, that it depends, right? If you're, if you're outside exercising alone, I do not think there is a need to wear a mask. Um, but then I think you gave the other example of if, if you're in a densely crowded uh, outdoor event, yeah that calculus changes because if you don't have you know certainly if you're if you're around a lot of individuals in public who may be unvaccinated um and we know that we have really high levels of community transmission right now um then wearing a mask uh even outdoors in a situation where you are in a crowded uh event or in a large uh, group of people I also think the calculus changes depending on your individual level of risk. Um, it's really uh, a different calculus for somebody who is older or somebody who has really complex medical problems that uh, put them at high risk for severe outcomes. And then it really changes the calculus as well. And then I think those folks uh, need to be very cautious right now, given the high levels of community transmission. And I think masking when you're, when you're in public around a large group of people, uh, whether it's indoors or outdoors, I, I, would, I would recommend masking. So I think that was probably consistent with what you just said, Secretary Scrape, that you do. <laughs> anyway, and over to you, Dr. Petal. Yeah, I would do the same. And, you know, I, I think also like taking care of the people that you're around, like if you have little kids that 
are at risk, you know, and you could bring it home or elderly parents. So yeah, I would definitely do the same. All right, thanks everybody. Next we'll turn to Cedar Atanasio, followed by Chris McKee, followed by Brittany Castello. Cedar, you are unmuted. Hi, thank you, Dr. Ross, for that overview of, um, of student cases. And we saw a little bit of information about what, what last year's holiday can tell us about this year. Could you sum that up for us, you know, for any parent who's thinking, hmm, is my school gonna get a bump in, in cases in the, in the next couple of weeks? What could we say, you know, with some confidence um, about the holiday and the effect on case rates for, for children? Well, as an epidemiologist, I try not to predict the future. <laughs> I try to look at the information in front of me. So the forecasting bit, I'll, I'll let Secretary Scrace uh, chime in as well. I think that we know really clearly that um, there is a delay uh, um, uh, after an event before we pick up uh, a surge in cases. And then there's another delay before people um, who become seriously ill end up in the hospital. So um, remember there, there is a, 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 there's an incubation period that we have to wait through and then folks have to seek a test and then, and then we, we can pick up what's happening. So could there be a bump in cases related to Labor Day gatherings? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, I can say that with confidence that there could be. Can I tell you that we're going to see it? No, because that depends on so many different factors, um, including uh, human behavior, right? So did people mask when they got together? Did people uh, gather uh, within their household versus outside their household, etc.? Um, I'm going to pause because the screen is frozen, and I'm not sure if I'm frozen. We can hear you, Christine. You can keep going. Oh, okay. So I would say we're going to keep a really close eye on this and see if we see this uptick in cases, though I already <laughs> shared with you some really uh, exciting uh, or, or what we hope uh, um, information where it does, we do see this plateau. And I believe even today we're going to report out our new cases and they've actually dropped even further than we've seen uh, prior. So that's great news, but I think you're gonna have to stay tuned because uh, we, we could see a bump, but I can't predict. There's so many different variables. Um, so I think just stay tuned over the next week. And, and let me see, Secretary Scrace, if you wanna add. Yeah, I was just gonna add another angle on this about the seasonality of the coronavirus, which I personally think there have been innumerable inaccurate predictions about. Like, I think we all sort of know that, oh, this virus is gonna be really awful in the winter. Well, we've had three basically, or, or four, depending on you count it, if you, if you wanna count the first one, but we've had four peaks, none of which have been in actual official winter uh, months. Although we were on the down, the tail down of our worst peak in November, December last year. I, and then we have these variants that are major, major variants that don't seem to be obeying any rules according to the season of the year or the weather or, or things like that either. I really hope that coronavirus becomes a seasonal virus. I would love that. That would really 
help us better prepare and shift our workforce and be ready and get on a regular vaccination schedule that we could all get every fall and we need coverage for six months and then we'd be good for a year like we are with influenza. So I think I think the only thing Labor Day this year uh, and last year have mainly in common is the fact that people get together on that holiday. But, you know, we were at a, a nadir actually in our epidemic curve uh, in Labor Day last year, we're at a peak, you know, this year. And so uh, I'm, but I am hopeful that it will become a seasonal uh, trend, but because that would enable us all to protect ourselves much better, I believe. But I don't think we're anywhere close to that just yet. And so far, all of the predictions really have not sent, not ended up with big peaks in the winter. Thanks, everybody. Uh, next, we'll turn to Chris McKee and Brittany Costello. And if I could ask um, if everybody else could just lower that. Yeah, thank you. You saw where I was going with that. Um, once we get through Chris and Brittany's questions, then I'll ask everybody to raise hands again, and we'll we'll go back through the sequence. So, uh, thank you for that, Chris. You are unmuted. All right. Thank you guys very much. Uh, hopefully, you can hear me here. Um, I wanted to ask specifically a, a question that kind of came out of the discussion we were having here in the newsroom about um, breakthrough cases. Um, the question was about sort of the double infection of COVID. I know anecdotally, we have sort of heard it out there that people, you know, some people say, oh, I, I got COVID twice. But it seems like perhaps that is maybe a hard thing to track. So I was just wondering, does the state by any chance track the number of sort of double infections out there? And is there a number maybe you could share with us about that? Thank you. Another really interesting question. So, um, so we call we call those uh, what you said double infection. We call reinfection, and we are tracking it. Um, I don't have a number that I can share off the top of my head. Um, if I had anticipated this, um, I, I could have um, um, uh, provided a number. So I can get back to you on that. We are tracking it. Um, and yeah, it, it does appear that reinfection is rare, uh, but it is documented. Um, it, it does appear to happen, though again, it's very difficult to, to tease this out um, from people who uh, may be, let me give you an example, may be immunocompromised and tend to uh, shed the virus uh, over a longer period of time than we would expect. And um, perhaps we pick this up with, with frequent testing, surveillance testing. Um, uh, in the example I'm giving you, I'm thinking of, of people that, that could reside in a, in a long-term care facility, like an older individual um, who, could, who could meet that description. So it can be very difficult without adding um, uh, genomic sequencing information to sort out, is this a real infection, a real reinfection, or are we in fact just picking someone up who um, they've tested positive again, and it's because they continue to shed the virus over a long period of time, uh, longer than uh, what we think is the majority uh, of folks where we, we believe most people stop shedding that virus within this 90-day um, time frame. 
so excellent question. And yes, we are tracking it. Uh, we're working with CDC uh, as well, um, and they are gathering information from different states. And I think you're going to hear more about this as, as time goes on. And certainly as we, we move through uh, um, uh, the pandemic over a longer period of time, I think the reinfection question will be uh, one that you will spend more time on. Yeah, Matt, I raised my hand because I have a question for Christine on this topic. Is that allowed? Absolutely. Okay, I'll lower my hand. So Christine, I remember we were going through this a lot and talking about it at some press conferences in the spring about reinfection. And at that time, the CDC uh, still hadn't nailed down a time period from the first infection to the second. And it was 90 or was it 180? And I think they were kind of at the time leaving it up to states to do that. Do you know if that's changed at all? Or I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I remember we were waiting for that as a way to nail down our data. Uh, it hasn't changed. They, they've they've kept it at uh, 90 days. There was a lot of debate. And as far as my last update on the topic, it hasn't changed. And I really think this is an area that that you're going to see a lot more discussion about and a, a lot more, uh, um, hopefully, sharing of information. Um, you know what states uh, what states collect we give it to uh, CDC and if they're able to to um, combine uh, data and provide us more of a uh, more of a perspective on this issue um, we're hoping that we're going to see more focus on this uh, in the in the coming days but thanks yeah great thanks everybody next we'll turn to Brittany Costello Brittany you are an Hi, thank you guys so much for your time. Um, I was hoping that you guys could talk a little bit about um, the current testing going on in schools and, and how that relates to students. Obviously, we heard about the grant and the intentions, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is currently happening. I, I, I know that there was the goal of 25% uh, student surveillance testing. Um, I'm wondering what we're at if we are getting any of that done prior to this grant. Thank you. Yeah, we, we had a little bit of a question about that last time, Brittany, on what was happening. And I texted the PED secretary. He said that uh, most of their schools are meeting state goals for staff surveillance testing. And I don't personally have data from PED, the public education department about student testing at the present time. Uh, by any chance, Christine, do you know anything about that? Um, we may have to get back to you on that one if Christine is not aware of current data on student texting. I don't have numbers on um, uh, on the testing program, I've, and but I believe that it's, it's really just getting uh, off the ground. I think um, uh, Dr. Pettahone will have some updates on that. Yeah, I think we can give um, like a better update next week because this program, the the testing program that's through this grant, just the the contract just started this week. So I think we'll have better data on like who uptook, you know, what's the uptake of the testing program, and uh, more information for you out next week. I think we can get that for you. Just to see, you know, it's a it's a sign up, so people sign up for it on the website. 
All right, thank you. Uh, next, we'll turn to Mike Smith, who hasn't had a chance to ask a question just yet. And then we'll, I think, dive back into the crowd of folks who already have. So Mike, you are... Okay, thank you very much. Uh, wanted to focus on some things going on here in the southeastern part of the state. I'm from the Carlsbad, Kern, Argus, and Eddy County, and I was wondering if you all could maybe address, speculate, however you want to term it, the sudden rise in cases that we had in Eddy County from Friday to uh, Tuesday. We had 63 new cases on Friday and 138 uh, for during the during the four day or during the three day Labor Day weekend period. I was wondering if you all could, uh, what sort of answers you, you may, you could all offer regarding the, the sudden rise in cases in any county over a, you know, five to six day period. Uh, sure. So I think I'll start. So um, I, I don't have the report in front of me, so I'm just going to take you at your word uh, that there were 63 on Friday, 138 Tuesday. So remember that that Tuesday report, that would be a four-day uh, uh, accumulative number. So what is that? That's like 30-some a day uh, in, in Eddy County. Um, so, um, I don't know that that's an actual, uh, increase and in fact could be a leveling off though. I'd, I'd have to take a closer look. Um, I did pull up our level of community transmission report, which was, was just posted a short time ago. And in general, um, Eddy County still has um, uh, high case rates, uh, 92.3 per 100,000 persons and um, a very high test percent positivity of over 14%. So we're nowhere out of the woods uh, there, um, but it doesn't appear to me like that was an acceleration. I think we need to uh, divide that by four and uh, um, and I think Secretary Scrace is usually quicker at that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, you know, I was, I'm sorry for, I didn't jump right in. I have uh, been actually staring at Chavez, Lee and Eddy counties every single day on the EPI report. And those numbers have been significantly high, particularly if you divide them by the population of Eddy County for uh, nigh on a month now for all three counties over a hundred cases, uh, you know, per 100,000 people per day, which is very, very high, particularly, you know, it's more than 10 times the number of cases we think is what we can handle. And so I think I think Christine's explanation about dividing by four is right. I've made that mistake as well and freaked out a little bit when I saw the uh, Monday. Uh, usually it's the Monday report. Uh, you could be even, uh, there's even a better excuse this week because it came out, uh, you know, normally it came out on Tuesday for four days. Normally it's Monday or three, but uh, I haven't really seen a major change in the Eddy County cases per hundred thousand, which uh, you can you can calculate yourself. You take your county population and just divide it into the cases. But it's been pretty steady and it's been bad. And we're it does seem to be leveling, I think, somewhat, but it's leveling at a high level. And so we kind of have our fingers crossed that that whole uh, southeastern part of the state will see a downturn in the near future. And I just wanted to add that was an excellent question and thank you for asking it because typically 
uh, we do a cumulative report on Monday, and, and that's absolutely correct. What Secretary Scrace said is that we allowed people a day off. So we did report that out on Tuesday. And so if that wasn't clear that that was uh, four days of data, that would have could have sounded alarms for various people. So thank you for bringing that question up. Yeah, as, an, as a bonus for asking that question, uh, I just brought up today's EPI report and uh, Eddy County is at 31 cases, which is the first time they've been in uh, below 100 per 100,000. And I apologize if this math is uh, confusing because only epidemiologists think of anything in terms of per 100,000. And so, but they're really used to it. So in any case, uh, I'll, uh, um, uh, that does look, that is a positive trend. And some of the other counties I mentioned still way up there, but Eddie appears to be at least for a day on a downtrend. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Um, if folks wouldn't mind just briefly putting your hands. Okay. looks like everybody's putting them up. So that, that works too. Um, I think we'll start as best I can remember. Julia was the first of this group to go last time. So we'll start with her again. Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thank you, Matt. I just wanted to follow up on a question I had sent um, Dr. Ross related to the um, case hospitalization and death counts by vaccination status. The unvaccinated portion of those includes people that are partially vaccinated, as well as people who are fully vaccinated, but less than 14 days after their final dose. And I just was curious, I guess, what, you know, of the 88.1% of cases among the unvaccinated, what proportion of those are actually people who have one dose or even two doses, but just haven't gotten past it? I didn't know if it was a significant, I'm assuming not a significant number, but also don't really want to assume anything. So thanks. Well, another fantastic question and apologies if you had sent that ahead of time. Um, I thought your question was related to just, you know, what was the definition and, and what did, where did we include people? Uh, but I see you're actually asking for numbers. Well, I, so, sent it at, I sent it at 5.30 in the morning, so I probably wasn't very clear what I was asking. Oh, no, no, no. I, I would say um, uh, let me get that number and I can get back to you. Because it's, it's another great question, but I don't have it at my fingertips. It'll take me a minute to pull that up. Okay, thank you. But Julia, another thing, and this is not about completeness of vaccination as it affects the case rates, the differential case rates, but it is about this constant 10% lag we see between people with one dose and people who've completed their series. And you heard, uh, you heard uh, Deputy Secretary Parahan, Laura, mention that we're ticking along at about 1% a week. And so that six-week period from your first shot to where you're immune with a Moderna or five weeks with uh, a, uh, a Pfizer vaccine from you know three weeks to the second dose, two weeks more to immunity. It is kind of reflected here in my own brain. I'm assuming that about 5% of people who got one vaccine won't get the second but, and that corresponds well with about half. So it's certainly possible that, uh, and which, and now I'm getting to your question and not gonna give you an answer. It's certainly possible that some of those people that are the difference between these two have gotten uh, or acquired COVID while they're waiting for their second shot or that two weeks more for immunity for those who got two shots. So thanks for asking that. 
Great. Okay, next we will turn to uh, Dan McKay, then Cedar Atanasio, then Brittany Costello. Dan, you are unmuted. Hi, Dr. Scrace. Can you elaborate on the uh, possibility of, of an ivermectin death in New Mexico? Are, are you saying that someone uh, took the medicine designed for horses as a potential COVID treatment and uh, died because they took the ivermectin? Uh, so, and, and, and Diana, you know, it's important it is in reporting the news to, you know, have verification and evidence for your sources. But some people I've been working with for the whole pandemic who I highly value their opinions have informed me that they had a case in one of their hospitals die from taking ivermectin. And the belief is that that ivermectin was obtained from a veterinary supply store. Uh, and so I have no idea how one would go about dosing oneself with ivermectin other than to make it really, really clear that one should never do that ever, ever, no matter what. Like if you're uh, a human being and you can hear this press conference, don't take the medicine. Yeah, but, you know, we generally wait uh, till uh, the cause of death has been confirmed by the treating physician. Not sure if this would become a uh, uh, a case for the medical examiner, but it 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 certainly could. And so we, it may take a couple of weeks for final confirmation, but reliable source, competent clinicians who really felt that that was the cause of death. Thank you very much. Uh, I apologize. I don't remember if I said Cedar's name or, or Brittany's name first, but I think we'll just go with Brittany and then we'll go to Cedar after that. So Brittany, you are unmuted. Hi, uh, thank you again. Um, I feel like I ask this question every time. So I know that you guys have, have talked at great lengths about the fact that we are gonna be living with this virus. However, um, you know, throughout this, this press conference, obviously you guys uh, have some cautious optimism to your voice with some of the plateaus that we're potentially seeing. I'm just wondering, uh, without predicting too much, uh, I think that we, we heard early on that we might be in for a rough winter with all sorts of things, not just COVID, but, but RSV and flu. But I'm just wondering, you know, if, if we keep up the good work, <laughs> vaccinations and uh, doing everything that we need to do, what what do you think it'll look like after this this surge? Um, what the rest of the year would look like? Do do you think we could see another surge in the winter, or do you think? I, I guess it's kind of open to interpretation, but I'm just wondering if you can kind of talk about maybe the future outlook. Well, I'll I'll start. Christine's already declared herself as not being a fan of uh, predicting the future, and. Uh, and uh, the problem with doing it is it's you're more likely to be proven wrong than right. But I think one thing we know for sure, Brittany, is that masks and social distancing are amazingly effective for, for preventing influenza outbreaks because we didn't have uh, one of any significance last winter. Uh, I think the answer, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is, you know, we have a surge, we implement mandates, 
people respond, the surge comes down, we relax, whatever mandates we have, then we have another surge. And I think we ought to all be starting and, and continuing a conversation about, you know, what are we willing to do for the duration of this whole thing? You know, we can't shut everything down. We tried that, that worked for a while, uh, but it just, you know, it's not a tenable alternative. How do we get to a point where we can more safely live with the virus? Uh, how can we get communities, not state government, but communities to step up and take individual actions to prevent spread in their own communities, like we're seeing in other places in the United States? What is a reasonable level of masking that we could all live with until the threat of recurrent surges is over, you know? And so I don't, I don't think the public discussion about that is fully started because we're kind of fighting the fires of these rises and falls in, in case counts. But I, I'm kind of hoping that these, these ups and downs can smooth out into sort of a steady state of a low number of cases that result from a certain amount of public health activity on all of our parts, a lot more people getting vaccinated, uh, even more than we have now. I think we've got a great opportunity when the vaccine becomes available for five to 11 year olds. I think that will be a chance to vaccinate a significantly greater number of our population. I'm, I'm excited that we keep seeing uh, the vaccination rate go up by a percent a week. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, because we uh, had data and survey data that people just wouldn't get vaccinated. So I think it's uh, what is the long game or what's the long-term strategy to live within a pandemic? And we talked, you might remember a year ago, I was talking a lot about the dimmer switch, not the on-off switch all the time, but the dinner, dimmer switch. And what as a society can we live with to get us out of this recurrent situation where we're you know really making it extremely difficult for hospital workers and nurses physicians and others to just even continue in their profession because it's been so stressful so i know that was a distinct non-answer but if i could predict the future and make it happen i would come up with some future where we all were willing to balance our own needs for individual freedoms with our own individual responsibilities to society. And we would, as a group, not every single person, because I get that, but as a group, come up with a middle way or a, an, an averaging effect of our public health measures and our, our uh, you know, and, and our vaccination rate and our response to these pandemics that we could all really live with. And so for me, I won't go into what I think I can live with, but we've been talking about a lot in our family, like, what would I be willing to do? You know, I'd like to get back to some aspects that I really enjoy about normal life, but so what am I willing to do to make those happen in a safe fashion and keep me safe and keep my patients safe and my uh, vulnerable family members safe? And so, I don't know, uh, that was a classically non-infectious disease answer. Uh, Christine, I don't know if you have any thoughts about uh, that or Laura, what you're thinking from the the vaccination perspective or other perspectives? Go ahead, Laura. 
Oh, go ahead. Oh, okay, great. Well, I mean, for me, I, you know, I think, you know, on the, the, the team at the DOH that's working on equity issues, I think a lot of this is about, are we reaching the most vulnerable populations who have been disproportionately affected? And I think we're still not there yet. We've been working hard on getting mobile teams, but also working with community health workers and communities. And I think this next phase of the of the vaccination is also working on some of the ground game piece, which is how are we reaching out to community organizations that communities trust, Hispanic and Latino populations, even though I think 68% have, you know, 68% of all children 12 to 17 have had their first dose, but for Hispanic and Latino populations, it's actually only 37% of those kids that have gotten their first dose. So I think we have to keep on, you know, as a society, like David saying, how can we also reach out to communities that have been historically marginalized or historically don't have as much trust in the health system? And so part of this is what we do as a community, I believe, to, to reach out and make sure that every person has access and the information that they need to make good decisions about, um, you know, being safe and protecting their kids and their families. So that's kind of where I think I feel also that we're at as a society too, is like, how do we protect and, and reach out to, to, to different groups that have been disproportionately affected? And Christine, any thoughts about influenza or RSV and this concomitant effect infections with COVID going forward? Well, I hadn't uh, thought of that yet, but what I wanted to mention was just this, I think this pattern has been established of, of surges and lulls. You know, we see this happening uh, globally. Um, so uh, it, it's it's very difficult to predict what we'll see in the winter. But but the risk uh, of another of another surge at some point obviously is is there. And I think just for me, the take home message is you know we're not really going to be completely safe until everybody's safe, which means, you know, we need to have really high vaccination coverage here in the United States. And we need to see the globe around the globe. People need access to uh, these just amazingly effective vaccines. And, and that's going to be the way out of this pandemic. It's a global pandemic. So uh, I just think uh, we're, we're not going to be out of the woods until we are all out of the woods. So I see that as a ways away. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we will turn to Cedar next and then see where we stand with folks uh, looking to ask additional questions. Cedar, you are unmuted. Well, thanks for your generosity. Your, all your answers are generating more questions. <laughs> um, so I guess I really just want to make a couple of requests. They won't require a response. Um, the first is for as many details as you can share about that Invermectin. Um, potential, potentially fatal, fatal overdose, but also um, uh, if there have been non-fatal overdoses this year. And then the, the second request I'm, and I, I guess this would be for um, Dr. Parajon to keep in mind, um, is for this student testing, this would be really the first surveillance testing that's, that's done. The, the program that has been going on the last six months didn't, didn't really exist. So if we can get results from, from those 
school encounters, it would be the first time that we have any kind of eyes on what the infection rates are in a particular district, for example, or at a particular school. So um, thanks, thanks again, as always, for doing this and just looking for, there's a lot of interest for that information. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for putting that out. So, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I said thanks for pointing that out. Well, yeah, we'll get that for you next week. Also, Cedar, I put that link that you asked for in the chat about a half an hour ago, but then I realized you didn't go to you. So if you look there now, you should see it. And on the ivermectin, we will uh, we will start looking more closely. We'll get you whatever data we can get. I think I made a calculated, took a calculated risk of bringing it up without firm documentation because I don't want more people to die of a ivermectin overdose in the next four weeks while we're gathering data. And it's a word that um, I think is reliable uh, that I, I just like people to know that if there are people out there taking it, it can kill them. But we promise, I promise we'll get back to you as we get that official data. Okay. Uh, would folks mind just putting their hands down and then Okay, Julie, you're leaving yours up. It sounds like it's a definitive uh, desire to ask a third question. So we will turn to you. You are unmuted. Oh, I, I'm sorry, I just sent it in the chat. I didn't need to ask it, but I just wanted, Dr. Space, you said there's also a second person who you believe is in in the ICU from ivermectin. <laughs> is that correct? Yeah, that's what I've been told by people I rely on for accurate information. But um, I, obviously there are HIPAA issues and even location and you know names you know aren't things I can we can release at the present time. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, I'm not seeing any additional hands. Uh, any final questions from the group? I'll just give it a five or ten seconds. Okay, looking looks like we've covered everybody. So, any final comments from our panelists? Um, I would just say fantastic questions, and I have some uh, homework assignments, and I'll, I'll get back to you uh, with with the information requested um, ASAP. Laura. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll get back to you on this, the student testing and updates on that for next week. Yeah, and I, I just thank you all. I do think, you know, when we when we look at curves go up, we turn to you to help us get the word out, uh, it's only appropriate, and you do, and you do get the word out, and you you show up and you ask great questions, and that refines our approach. I mean, you have no idea how many times just some of the questions you ask have refined the way we approach things. And and then it's only appropriate that when we see the cases, uh, not quite down just yet, but as we see them at least stabilize, to thank you as well for getting the word out to folks and letting people know. and. And I, I'm really interested in an ongoing conversation about what the future looks like and how we get through this in the long run, not just you know wave to wave, but is there a strategy? I don't think, as, as, as Christine pointed out, we're seeing these spikes and troughs all over the world. And I don't think there's anybody that, that apart from you know locking down the whole country at its borders, that's found a way to really completely suppress uh, the, the virus. And even those folks that did that um, saw subsequent uh, case outbreaks. So just appreciate your partnership, appreciate your 
attention to the details of things. And uh, we do have some of those assignments and we don't get back to you this week. We'll be sure to put those things into next week's press conference like we did uh, like we did uh, this week from the questions we couldn't answer last week. So thanks. Have a great day. Uh, stay safe. Wear a mask indoors. And uh, if you haven't gotten vaccinated or you know someone that hasn't gotten vaccinated, please encourage them to talk with their trusted source of health information to talk through that decision. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.